right, we are back. We've got about 15 minutes to go. I'm a little bit out of the loop in terms of the things we usually like to talk about on this show, which is stuff going on in the world. And I have to confess, it was kind of good, good to get away from that for a few weeks. But, you know, it's the holiday season, uh, and we're just, you know, two days before Christmas. Let's try and focus on some cool stuff happening in the world. I guess we can start with the fact that the New START treaty between the U.S. and Russia looks like it's headed for passage in the Senate. It just, uh, I guess the, the Senate did vote for it. Eleven Republicans and two independents switched over to join the Democrats in giving it a, uh, a healthy majority. Uh, ratifying treaties in the Senate takes uh, 67 votes, a two-thirds majority, and they got that. This treaty would replace the expired START-1 uh, treaty and reduce Russian and U.S. deployed nuclear warheads from 2,200 to 1,550. It'll restart inspections so we can make sure that none of the Russian nukes go missing and wind up in the hands of terrorists. It's a good idea. It looks like it'll be implemented. Here's a story that really kind of struck me as probably overblown at first that uh, scientists growing some very tough bacteria out of Mono Lake discovered that these bacteria have a trick up their sleeve that uh, no one thought was possible. There's some really basic elements that you need if you want to have uh, life as we understand it here on Earth. It's basically carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. That'll give you sugars. You add a little nitrogen and sulfur. That'll give you some uh, proteins. You're going to have to add phosphorus if you want to have DNA and RNA and quite a few other bits of cellular uh, mechanics. Phosphorus is, in fact, essential for that uh, great goal, that uh, double helix we're all familiar with that forms DNA. Well, by growing this organism and then starving it of phosphorus, and it grows in an environment with a lot of toxins like arsenic, they discovered that the bug was able to substitute arsenic in its chemistry for phosphorus. That didn't strike me as terribly weird for some phosphorus-containing compounds, but it turns out that it seems it can replace phosphorus in everything with arsenic, which is quite a trick. Now, if you look on the periodic table of the elements, and I, and I hope you will every, every so often, you'll notice that the elements are arranged in columns. The columns tell you what the outer electron shells look like, and that sort of determines the chemistry of the element um, as much as more than anything else probably. But when you add more layers underneath, that outside layer is affected and uh, it's changed a bit. My, remember my organic chem professor at UC Davis said that anyone out there thinks they're going to be silicon-based life, sand people like in the sci-fi novels, they got another thought coming. The silicon atoms have other layers of electrons, and it's just not the same for making these long compounds like we're used to in organic chemistry. And that, of course, appears to be true. You can buy some silicon-based uh, uh, oils and things that uh, sort of mimic carbon-based compounds, but um, silicon is a different beast. Although, to my understanding, and I hope you'll correct me on this, dear listener, if I'm wrong, but... Uh, Silly putty <laughs> uses silicon oils, which may account for some of its remarkable properties. But uh, the idea of being able to take this phosphate, which is part of the backbone of DNA, and substituting arsenic for it, strikes me as pretty weird. 
as weird as expecting uh, silicon oils to replace uh, conventional carbon ones. It's, it's very odd. If you look on the periodic table, as I, again, suggest you do every so often, silicon's right below carbon and arsenic is right below phosphorus. Just goes to show you, the more we look at life here on Earth, the more strange and amazing we find it to be. We had no idea, even 40 years ago, that, you know, deep sea vents would uh, find life here on Earth based not upon photosynthesis in any way, but upon hydrogen sulfide dissolved in the water. We found all sorts of chemical reactions that, uh, that, that uh, bacteria are able to harness. You know, such things as like, you know, ferric ion being converted to ferrous ion. Strange inorganic chemistry. And yet life's learned to take advantage of it. Commenting about this, uh, this, this, this bizarre life form, Felisa Wolf-Simon told New Scientist magazine that life could be much more flexible than we generally assume or can imagine. It's been noted that this finding suggests that life might evolve on planets with environments previously deemed too harsh. So we're back to something we've talked about on this show before. Might we find life when we get to Mars? Well, we might, and I, and I hope we go. And I hope we send people there. Even though, as we talked about a few weeks back on the show, it may turn out that's going to be a one-way trip for folks. But I'd be willing to bet if you asked people to make a one-way trip to the planet Mars, you'd have them lined up around the block. And probably among that, uh, <laughs> that bunch of folks, you'd probably even find a few that were qualified to go. That's a topic we'll, of course, return to. And by the way, Keep those cards and letters coming in, <laughs> at least the uh, email letters, to info at radioparallax.com. We, we always like to hear from you. This might be a chance for me to also plug our previous chat with Mary Roach about that very subject of going into space and Mars and quite a few other topics mixed in. We talked about her book, Packing for Mars, uh, I don't know, a few months back. You can find it by scrolling through our archives. Uh, we do need to improve our website a little bit in terms of the fact that you can't necessarily find uh, the guests we've had in the last year or two. We're going to fix that. But uh, if you scroll around, you'll, you'll find folks. All right, we've got about six or seven minutes left. What else can we talk about? Oh, how about the fact that Cosmopolitan is going to launch a new Mongolian edition? And doggone it, I'm sure they're saying in Ulaanbaatar, it's high time. It's actually pronounced Ulaanbaatar. If you're planning to visit this fair city and want to get a copy of the new Cosmo, it's going to set you back about six fifty in Mongolian Tugriks. Cosmo says they're going to edit it right in the capital of Mongolia and may tone down the sex part a little bit. If you've ever seen the cover of Cosmo, you can just imagine what's going to go in the Mongolian edition. How to bring out the Genghis Khan in your man. 18 decorating tips for your yurt. Actually, the Russians call them yurts. The Mongolians call them gurs. Recipes for four mouth-watering desserts using camel's milk. Yes, they do drink camel's milk in Mongolia. I tried some. That is to be distinguished from kumis, or fermented mare's milk, the alcoholic beverage the Mongol horde rode on. And I, I don't recall trying that when I was there, and I'm pretty sure I would have remembered it. And how about this story, which is a good one? Apparently a Taiwanese man identified as Mr. Lin had a problem. 
He accidentally dropped a bag of Taiwanese currency, 200 bills equaling $6,600, into a factory shredder. Turns out the forensics division of Taiwan's Justice Ministry had a solution. Used their veteran forensic scientist Liu Hui Fen, who's been nicknamed the Jigsaw Expert. It took Liu seven days, but she was able to piece the bills back together. And after Taiwan's central bank determined the reconstructed notes were valid, Mr. Lin got his money back. My question is, how much did he give Lui Hui Fen, who put, put, the, put it all back together for him? I say she deserves at least half the bundle. Don't you agree? And, and how about this news? Apparently Gladys Burrill finished this year's Honolulu Marathon in 9 hours, 53 minutes, which is not exactly a blistering pace. Gladys, however, is 92 years old. The president of the marathon, Dr. Jim Barahal, said, I think it's absolutely unbelievable. Apparently Gladys first ran the marathon when she was 86. She was unable to finish last year's race because she suffered from stomach cramps at the 25-mile mark. Determined to do better, she ran 30 to 50 miles a week for the past year. Said Gladys Burrell, I was more relaxed. I didn't have the stress I had before. This just felt so much better. All right, final item of the day. I hope you caught the uh, eclipse of the moon, which took place on Monday night. It uh, took place in the winter solstice, which got people saying, this is the first time it's happened since 1650 or some such thing, which I'm sure is true, but an eclipse happening a day before or a day after or within a week of the solstice, I'm sure is very common. You probably get one of those every decade or a couple decades. I don't know. Sometimes folks go nuts in these statistics. But anyway, I'm sorry to report that I slept through this one. Still pretty tired, maybe a bit jet-lagged from all this uh, running amok, and I, I just didn't wake up. But happily, Jason was able to report for Radio Parallax that uh, it was quite spectacular. The first part of the Earth's shadow, the partial shadow, the penumbra, turned the moon a bit blue, and when it finally hit the deepest part of the shadow, the umbra, at one point the moon got uh, almost blood red. Now we have other observers that say it was more of an orange color, but you know, from, from dark red to orange, it may have been depending on where you were and the, the contrast to the clouds around you. But the moon during an eclipse, I've noticed, has this 3D quality to it from the diffuse light. It looks like a globe hanging up there in space, which a full moon normally really doesn't look like. That 3D effect may be, the, I think, the coolest part of a lunar eclipse, and I'm, I'm frankly sorry I missed this one. It's funny, that red color uh, comes about because um, the sunsets of the ring all around the Earth are what light up the moon. That's what most of the light is provided by. And, of course, you know, at sunset the sun looks red, and so the moon takes on a red appearance, but it depends on the cloud cover around the planet uh, that we live on. It, it always varies eclipse to eclipse, a little bit different. Everyone's, everyone's unique. And if we fail to alert you about this one, and I, and I think I did in all the traveling and such, well, I, I apologize. We, we like, to, like to point out such things. But uh, we hope you caught it regardless. And if you have any reports you want to file, again, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. Our thanks to Will Durst whose opinion we value very much. And by the way, all the opinions you heard tonight in this program, you know those don't necessarily reflect those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the university. 
Although I'd say in most cases they should. But they don't, necessarily. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Have a Merry Christmas, or whatever it is you'd like to celebrate. And we'll see you next week for our last show of 2010. We'll try and, uh, I think, look back at the year and maybe tell a few more travel stories. I hope so. We'll see you then. <laughs>